every week that you have a face covering requirement in place with good compliance, you benefit with a three to 4% reduction per week in the number of new cases. So the longer we keep the mask mandate in place and the longer the compliance stays decent, the longer we're gonna be able to benefit from that. Think of it this way. I think of sports as a good metaphor for our society, and we're learning a lesson from watching the sports leagues resume. You've got one or two sports leagues that could enforce a bubble, two other leagues that aren't doing a bubble and are having trouble with coronavirus are the MLS and uh, MLB. Baseball has got a potential that its season is going to get canceled. Ultimately, if you're relying on good facts and good science, you're just going to be right a lot more often than those that are peddling in misinformation. It gives us the ability to really know something. And when you know something, it's more likely to be true tomorrow like it is today. I think things are stable and looking up, but there's always the wild card out there because policies can change in a New York minute as we have seen more than once over the course of this pandemic in Arizona. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Park Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Welcome to August and the return of our COVID-19 roundtable. Perhaps what's changed more than anything in the last two weeks would be in a word, confidence. There's increased confidence that Arizona has plateaued in terms of spread and healthcare resource utilization for now, although at a high watermark. There's increased confidence that we will see a vaccine sooner rather than later too. But many questions remain, and we'll talk about some of those today. We'll get to our roundtable guests in just a moment, including the return of one of our good friends. But first, your weekly reminder. Don't stop being smart when it comes to COVID-19. Stay at home as much as you possibly can, wash up, mask up, maintain social distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. The real reason we can feel some confidence right now is because we've been doing more of what it takes to slow the spread. We need to be in this together in order to get out of this together. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about the numbers. Arizona's testing capacity and turnaround times, K-12 schools reopening, universities reopening, the latest on vaccines, and a new segment we call Heard It Through the Grapevine. In other words, it's time to talk about what life with COVID-19 looks like as of August 3rd, 2020. We are back again this week with a COVID-19 roundtable. Marcus Johnson unable to join us this week. However, always in the seat, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Everything's good. Also joining us after three consecutive night shifts, Dr. Amish Shah. Doctor, how are you, sir? Doing really well and um, feeling the morning base. And then, surprise, surprise, returning to the table, Dr. Nick Vasquez. How are you, sir? I am happy to be back. Good to see you all. So glad to have you. Well, let's start with the numbers. From a layperson's point of view, I could go to the Arizona Department of Health Services website and I could start looking at all those data curves and say to myself, wow. Daily confirmed cases are now back to the level they were on June 1. Looks like we're doing better. Don't rely so much on what you see on the dashboard right now until the turnaround times get fixed. Because what you're looking at now, the number of cases that come out today are mostly tests where the specimen was collected two weeks ago. So they are fixing that backlog, they say. The SnorQuest backlog has improved a lot, but they're still behind. Don't hang your hat on any particular indicator, look at them as a whole. The percent positives are drifting down. The number of new cases per day is stable or drifting down. Again, the key thing is the percent positives, really. The number of new hospitalizations has stabilized. 
and the census is dropping. So a safety margin is improving within the hospital systems. There's good evidence that the interventions of late June are working. That's the face covering requirements that the cities and the counties put in place, along with closing the nightclubs and bars. I think all those things have had a positive impact. And one of the things we learned from the National Academy of Science report on face coverings was that every week that you have a face covering requirement in place with good compliance, you benefit with a three to 4% reduction per week in the number of new cases. So the longer we keep the mask mandate in place and the longer the compliance stays decent, the longer we're going to be able to benefit from that. I think things are stable and looking up, but there's always the wild card out there because policies can change in a New York minute as we have seen more than once over the course of this pandemic in Arizona. Dr. Shaw, the New York Times called it Arizona's tenuous virus plateau. Do you see it that way? Is that the experience you're seeing in the ER or does it still feel like we are at a very high rate of infection and hospitals are still feeling a ton of strain? No, I actually think it's better than a plateau. I think it's actually decreased. What's it look like on a daily basis then? To me, it's gotten back to that level where we were, like I said, in early June, where I'd see one or two cases a night, and that's kind of what I'm seeing right now. Nick, how about you? Your experience? My experience is this is kind of a little different than what we're used to. For 15 years, I've been you know, advocating for ERs and talking about crowding and about overwhelming numbers and the, the problem of seeing patients with less than adequate resources. The ER is not where the holdup is. Right now, the holdup or the point of scarcity is the ICUs. How many ICU beds do we have? How many ICU-trained nurses do we have? How many ICU doctors do we have? The vents aren't really all that helpful because we have a lot more vents than we have people to staff them. It's really that capacity for the ICUs to see patients that is the scarcity. So I don't get to see that on a daily basis. And unless your hospital system, you know, shares those numbers, most of the public doesn't get to see that either. So, Will, how much do we know about the backlog of tests? How many there are and what the turnaround time is? And how is that hampering our capacity as a state to actually track and contain the virus? I'll start with the last part first because that's the most important part of your question. So the turnaround time is the base of the pyramid. The testing is the base of the pyramid. What makes testing useful is when it can provide actionable information. And when test results come back 12 to 14 days after the patient has had the sample collected, it provides no actionable information. The person who gets the test doesn't get the information in time to guide them about what they should do in their personal or professional lives. If it's an employer who's paid for the test, they don't get any actionable information with which to make staffing decisions. The people at the county health departments get the information after it is antique and unusable because you do a case investigation on somebody who has already recovered and you're not going to find a fruitful group of contacts to identify. So you've lost one of your primary interventions. Finally, when people know that their results are going to get back 12 to 14 days after they take the test, it has a chilling effect on testing as a whole. Because why go out in the sun and get a test just because you're a contact of somebody and you're feeling fine when you're going to not find out for like 14 days? So it has been a problem for weeks now. It sounds to me like there's actually encouraging information that we're getting close to fixing it, although it's still not fixed. 
One of the questions you asked is, how big is the backlog? A week ago, the backlog was 67,000 samples at SonoraQuest were sitting in freezers waiting to be tested. That was resulting in the 12 to 14 day turnaround time. Now, I'm talking about people who got community tests. For people who will go into the hospital, those results are coming back fast. It's the community samples that have been coming back so slowly. State government granted SonoraQuest $2 million to help with their PCR technology. That's the instruments that they use to run those tests. They invested an additional $6 million for a total of $8 million, and that was the money that they said they needed to increase their capacity so that they could clear their backlog and then meet the expectations of a 48-hour turnaround time moving forward. Now, that hasn't been fixed yet, but the promises have at least been made. The first step to getting better is recognizing that you have a problem. They've recognized now that turnaround times are a problem. They've committed resources to it. The backlog, I think, is the last I checked, about 13,000. So it's no longer 67,000. So they're working that backlog. Once the backlog's cleared and once there's 48-hour turnaround times for these samples, it will provide a lot more actionable information to people personally, professionally, to businesses, and to the contact tracers at the counties. Also, people might become interested in getting tested again because they'll hear Turnaround times are okay. The easiest lightning round question ever, starting with Nick. Are you getting the turnaround times on tests that you need to do your job well? There is a short amount or a small amount of rapid turnaround tests that we can use each day that we'll be able to determine whether or not a hospital patient has COVID or not. I think the same is true for almost all of the the systems that I know of. The issue is, is that you can run out of those pretty quick. So if somebody comes in and says, I think I might have it, and then you tell them, well, yeah, I think you might have it. Well, can I get a test? No, not not really. Sorry. Just because we can do a test, but it will get sent out in about two weeks. Basically, say, look, just act as if you have it. There's almost no point in waiting for a test for the confirmation. You just need to make sure that you act like you've got it and protect the people that you can. It's kind of a frustrating conversation. Dr. Shaw, similar setting for you? Yes, pretty much. I agree. I just want to get to that backlog question. Remember, we talked about what the backlog was and then what percent would be positive and then presumably how many more positive tests you would have added to your total. Even if you added that, we'd still be seeing a decrease. I want to reiterate that point. I think, Will, you would agree with that, correct? Yeah. talk about positivity rate. For PCR testing, our positivity rate is still 14.5% right about now. Yes, basically, yeah. Just this past weekend, we got guidance from the CDC. We got media interviews with Deborah Burks and Robert Redfield that said, basically, it's ill-advised to reopen schools until a given area's positivity rate falls towards 5%. So, Will, what's going on with schools and reopening in Arizona? So we've been doing a lot of advocacy at the Arizona Public Health Association on this. Here's the thing. Up until about a week or so ago, the governor has set like aspirational dates for school opening, but there hasn't been any discussion of criteria that need to be met in order for school districts to go ahead and make the call that in-person instruction is an okay thing. 
And so what we have been advocating, and so has Superintendent Hoffman, and and the governor himself, actually, last week in his press conference, said, yes, we need some criteria for community spread to help make those decisions by the governing boards. And so he directed the state health department to come out with some proposed community-based standards that would need to be met in a county, and then the school district be able to use that information to help inform their decision about when to start in-person instruction. So I applaud that decision. I think it's the right call to use that kind of evidence to help drive the date. I'm hoping that there's a meaningful and aggressive standard, like you just mentioned, something like 5% positivity rate, along with a consistent decline in percent positive, consistent decline in the number of new cases as measured by a seven-day moving average, some assurance that hospitals are open for elective procedures in that county. And if all of those conditions were met, at let's say 5% positivity rate, that would be a good set of standards. But then you have to think about what if your in-person instruction begins, you're below 5% positivity in let's say Maricopa County, and then it starts to drift up a little bit again, what do you do? So I think what makes sense then, so you avoid starting, stopping, starting, stopping, is to set some sort of buffer gray area where you could say you're open at 5%, And then if your percent positivity in your county reaches 8% again, then you would need to stop in-person instruction. That's just an example, 8%. It could be 7, 7.5%. But I think you need to give a buffer to schools so that if they go above 5% and they've already started in-person instruction, that they're not starting and stopping in-person. That's too disruptive to people's lives. So I think it is important to have metrics, but you also have to think about the practical application of those metrics too. And so I'm hopeful that the state health department is going to be thinking those things through. And we should find out, I think the press conference this week will be probably on the 6th. I think we'll probably find out what those metrics are on the 6th. And again, they're guidelines for governing boards. It's not going to be a directive. And I think that's okay. I think governing boards are elected by their communities. They ran for those jobs. Now they didn't run thinking they were going to be making decisions like this, but they're accountable to the people in their school district. And I think it's okay for them to use that information and guidance and make local decisions that are informed by that evidence. Nick, and given what Will just said and what's being proposed there, and I know that a number of organizations have made those proposals and they're being considered by Superintendent Hoffman. The one thing that caught my ear when he spoke about that was that that positivity rate would be at the county level. Is that the right unit of measure, especially in a state where counties can be enormous? It's funny that you should mention this because I've been trying to get as much information as I possibly can for the benefit of the school that my kid goes to. Being an advocate and a parent, there was this odd news piece in the Wall Street Journal, a a serious actual like eight minute long video saying that largely we should just follow what the Apple stores do because they've been able to get it right pretty well all the way along. turns out what they do is they make localized decisions based upon not only infection rates, but they also call the state and the county public health departments to get information to make their open or closed decisions. I think zip code is a lot better for us to start using rather than just county because there's so many desperate ways in which we measure health in this county. Scottsdale is not Chandler, is not Tolleson, is not Maryvale. And they're all in the same county. I think we really need to break it down more by zip code. A slight switch, though. It's really hard as a provider right now to say that there's a clear consensus about what to do with school other than there's a mix. And that mixed consensus is we need to open schools immediately 
but only when it's safe to do so. And there's been all the attempts to try to figure out what's safe, but it's clear there's harms uh, both to the kids and to adults in both instances. There's harms if we keep the schools closed. That has an impact upon parents and their ability to work. There's harms to the kids because they're no longer being observed by the teachers and a lot of domestic violence and abuse is picked up there. There's harms to a number of kids who don't get lunch. Then again, if you open the schools, all of this nice work we've had with the cases over the last couple of days, all this decline, this tenuous plateau will go away. All of the gains that we've made in case numbers have been because we have good mitigation, because we're doing masks, because things are shut down. You open up the schools again, and you're going to have interaction between kids and adults, and then the virus is just going to spread. It just is. No matter what you do, it's just going to increase. I can't see 10-year-olds being fastidious about their masks and hygiene, despite our best efforts. That part kind of worries me the most. I don't know how to make a decision about which harm is greater. Is it the teachers who we should be saying, well, it's time for you to take a risk? Or is it the parents? Well, it's time to take one for the team. I don't know which one is the right choice. But I do know that we've got to make an informed decision based upon the data that we've got, based upon the changing situations as we go forward. Because the one unhappy note that I can share today, the nadir in hospital cases overall was June. That was our low watermark. We had the greatest amount of space in the hospitals and the ICUs and in our capacity to care for people in June. And as we go forward up until our peak in January, we're going to have less and less excess space. So all this stuff that we did to kind of take care of all the COVID patients, like converting pediatric floors into ICU beds, because we could, that's not going to be an option for us going forward. And that needs to be considered as we think about reopening schools or keeping them closed. Be clear on why that's not an option going forward. There's an annual variation with the amount of cases that we have from summer to winter. Our low watermark is June because a lot of folks don't like the heat. They stay inside. They also go back to Maine or Manitoba or Michigan or wherever it is that they're from. And then they come back starting October. We start to see an increase in the overall population that we're dealing with. In 15 years as an ER doc, it's crickets in June and it's bedlam in January, February, and March. You're adding on shifts, you're increasing your staffing, you're having longer wait times, you have more patients being held in the department because there's no place to put them in the hospital. It's a completely different experience from, say, June or July in a hospital than it is in January, February, or March, at least in Arizona. Our overall visitor volume goes up a lot. And then you have just more respiratory viruses in your typical flu season. You've got all sorts of viral stuff. And then all the older folks with COPD or with asthma or with heart failure, they just become more prevalent. You just have more people to take care of. right that the volume here in Arizona increases in wintertime and then decreases in the summer. But there's a lot at play. People may not come down to Arizona from the other parts of the country if there's still these kinds of concerns. We may see, because everybody's still kind of afraid wearing masks and isolating, that the flu season is not as bad this coming year as we've had in, in prior years. We also have to take into account, similar to what we discussed last week, that the virus has, in fact, 
burned through a lot of the population. When I say a lot, you look at the positivity numbers on the serology and we're at 15% or something right now. I, I just assume it's, it's actually higher than that. But that number only moves in one direction. It only goes up. So any mathematical model will have the virus spread slowing because certain people are just blocked from having it or spreading it because they've already had it. The people who have had it are more likely people who are out and about and are not sort of staying away from the virus as a whole. As a proportion of all the people out there that are kind of out and about interacting, you have some natural reasons why the rate of spread might be lower. So I'll put all that together and that's a mathematical model. Two flies in the ointment. And I don't know whether to trust King's College studies or not, but that one study about the length of time that an antibody response lasts for someone who had a mildly symptomatic or an asymptomatic case of COVID-19 seemed to indicate that, yeah, you got some antibodies, but they didn't last very long. So it's an open question to me as to whether or not the mild cases produce the kind of long-lasting immunity that we would need. The other thing is, you know, the immunity to a coronavirus that doesn't last very long because a coronavirus mutates so much, which is why I'm so hopeful for a vaccine, because the parts that don't mutate are the receptor binding proteins. Your body goes through this whole randomization process to try and figure out which part of the coronavirus it can recognize. And so many parts of the coronavirus are going to change within months. The typical coronavirus antibodies don't last for very long. I sure hope we don't rely on a herd immunity strategy, but rather we try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Last week, we also, Nick, you weren't here, but we did discuss the fact that, well, yeah, antibodies, I agree, it seems to show that they're declining. But number one, nobody ever talks about T-cell mediated immunity, which is just a harder thing to measure and is still protecting us. So there is that whole bit. Again, even if the antibodies decline, nobody has yet said that we just aren't forming the memory B cells that typically protect us during things like this. And the other thing I just want to add, when you scan through all of the case reports and evidence that we have so far on reinfection, what I have not yet seen is a case report of somebody who had COVID-19, then went negative, and then ended up with severe symptoms from COVID-19 as a reinfection. In all of the world so far, we haven't really seen a reinfection become very symptomatic. Not one case I've seen anywhere. That should tell you right there. If that were to happen, I assume that somebody would pick it up. Not having seen that for months and months and months gives me a lot more hope that immunity is more durable. My understanding of the two other novel coronaviruses, MERS and SARS, was that the effectiveness of antibody duration was somewhere between two to three years for the people who got SARS initially or got MERS initially. That would be incredibly helpful. It would be really helpful to try to stop this pandemic in its tracks if people had resistance of some type to infection for a year or two years. The stakes are so high and our propensity to listen to evidence and act based upon that so low. You get my argument that I have not seen a single case report. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's evidence itself. It's not a study, but still, you should see somebody in the millions of cases we've had all across the world. We've talked about K-12 and what the guidelines will be, but I know I got a 20-year-old kid who's about to go to ASU next week, and they're starting, and U of A's starting, and NAU's starting. Will, 
what Nick said was you can't trust a 10 year old. I can think of a couple of knuckleheads at the university level that might not be trustable either. So what is your take on universities reopening now? Universities are, uh, Dr. Carmona, for example, is working on the plan for U of A uh, down Tucson. I know that there's an active group at ASU and also NAU trying to put together mitigation plans for the classroom, for the laboratories, figuring out how to deal with the dormitories. And I think the on-campus stuff is manageable and mitigation is possible, but the off-campus behavior is the wild card. And those are the apartment complexes around the university that when school starts, even if classes are mitigated on campus, classrooms, labs, and so forth, the off-campus behavior, it's, I mean, those apartments are turned into like nightclubs in August and September when school starts again. They get a keg and the whole apartment complex becomes a big giant party zone. And that happens all around the perimeter of these universities. And so I think the wild card is really the off-campus party behavior when people come back, if it's in-person instruction. The situation's manageable with a good mitigation plan and good compliance, required face masks on campus, you know, limitation of sizes, spacing, figuring out what you're going to do with the labs. Those things are doable. The off-campus behavior that's bothering me. Uh, Dr. Shaw, does that keep you up at night thinking about tens of thousands of college students going back on campus and then partying all weekend long? Yeah, unless some real guidelines are put into place, I think you'd start to see some of that. My understanding of, of what's going on at the university, specifically ASU here nearby, they are taking great pains to make sure that they put into affect lots of procedures to contain the spread, at least within the university. So that gives me a lot of hope. And, and then, of course, we got that ban right now on bars, which is where a lot of people do congregate. So I think that all of that kind of does lessen it as much as we can. Again, we, we can't just stop people from socializing and spreading it. We're relying on the public to listen to the advice we've been giving out and, and do the responsible thing. And like I said, so far, they have been. Nick, if you receive an invitation to a kegger, would you drive by with a mask on and tell them to all go home? <laughs> I expect kids to be kids. I expect young adults to be young adults. How many kids have felt like not their problem and then gone out to bars and then we had a bunch of young people with coronavirus cases? Just think it's normal. Think of it this way. I think of sports as a good metaphor for our society. And, and we're learning a lesson from watching the sports leagues resume. You've got one or two sports leagues that could enforce a bubble, uh, the NBA and the NHL. They put everybody through quarantine, they have protocols, they have testing, and they've done a pretty good job keeping things going. The NBA is going to have a season and is going to have some playoffs at this point. Two other leagues that aren't doing a bubble and are having trouble with coronavirus are the MLS and uh, MLB. Baseball has got a potential that its season is going to get canceled. I think what we've learned from this is if you can bubble, you can probably be safe and do what you mean to do, but that's not going to be a college campus. Colleges are going to have to acknowledge that they're going to have cases. What do they do about it? How are they going to mitigate the threat? Not to the kids, because most of the kids are going to be fine, not to the young adults, because again, they're mostly going to be fine, but to the staff and the cafeteria workers who tend to be older and poorer, to the university communities around. Those are the questions that I would have. And I know there's harms both ways. If you close the school down, whether it be a K through 12 or through a college, 
that's a harm economically. And if you open it up, you're going to have increased spread. Are you able to deal with that? Are you able to mitigate that? Are your hospitals able to deal with it? It's a very difficult, nuanced conversation that needs to be data-driven. And I hope that's what the Department of Health Services tells us on August 6th or 7th. You left out NASCAR and Formula One. You may be one of those people who thinks that race car driving is not a sport. I'm not sure. But uh, here we are in 2020, and driving a car at a high speed around other cars at high speeds turns out to be safer than baseball. You bubble. You bubble. The closest you get is you swap some paint. (laughs) Will, last word on universities. I think if we can get our percent positive rates down to a reasonable level, if we can manage the spread, if we can fix the turnaround time so the testing provides actionable information, if then people have the ability to get fast tests, if they're able to communicate with each other when they're positive, and they can let each other know for the purposes of ad hoc contact tracing, and we keep an eye on the dashboard, I think it's worth a try to open up K-12 and the university system because of what things that Nick just said, not just the educational part of it, the curriculum, it's the socialization that happens, especially in K-12. It's the things that kids learn. It's the food service programs. It's nutrition. It's the check and balance in the system for domestic violence and child welfare. I think it's worth it to open up if you do it in a safe way. I think we're on the right track now. There's some big giant policy decisions on the horizon and that could change things radically really fast. What if, for example, the governor decided to allow bars and nightclubs to come up with mitigation plans and a test that they are mitigating but still have no compliance or enforcement system in place? We could very well be back with exponential growth in cases again. Here's the seed all plan on this. I think that having bars and nightclubs open is mutually exclusive from having K-12 system happening. I don't think you can do them both at the same time if you're going to have meaningful community spread standards for the K-12 system. Because I think if you open up the bars and nightclubs, it's going to send your percent positives and your case trend up, and the districts are going to have to close until the vaccine comes. And those are policy decisions. I'll throw another policy decision and I'd like to see us have just an acknowledgement that if we don't have enough testing for the community and the test turnaround is so long that we reserve our testing for the places that need it the most. I think that's K through 12 and I think that's the nursing homes. The nursing homes have been a major source of infections and death. They also expose the people who work there who tend to be poorer and take public transportation. I'd like to see them get tested, but honestly, you could open up your K through 12 schools if you had a reasonable expectation that you could test your teachers once a week and get a result within 24 hours. I just think we're going about using scarce resources the wrong way. And I'd love to see testing reserved for those two sites, honestly, for the benefit of us all. But it would mean most of us would just have to clinically assume that we had it if we had symptoms and we wouldn't get that kind of certainty. I think that would help us though. We got to talk vaccines a little bit. At this point, we've got a president who says we're going to have a vaccine before the end of the year. We have Dr. Fauci saying he's optimistic. We have others, including Will Humble in our last roundtable, saying he is optimistic. But what does that really look like in terms of what should people's expectations be? Because I think the general public's take on that is if we have a vaccine in December or January or February or March, then next week after that, we can party on. What does it really look like? How does it go, Nick? Both Bill and uh, Melinda Gates gave a talk at a Forbes event. He said he's 
also optimistic that we're going to have a vaccine fairly soon and that if the investments go right, he was hopeful that we could get 80% of the world vaccinated within two years. And that just dropped like a bomb for me. I guess the supply issue is glass vials. The number of glass vials that you would need to make to get the vaccine out to everyone out there and get them two doses so that they'd actually get a robust immune response, that's a holdup. For the United States, there's 300 million people. You need 80% of them to get the vaccine. To be certain, you need two doses. So you do the math, but that number of glass vials, we don't have the capacity to produce. It's just all these little supply chains that are problematic for us right now. And just the idea that, hey, we're going to have a vaccine, let's say first quarter 2021, and that you really won't get the full vaccination for two years after that was just really frustrating to think, but I struggle to see how he's wrong. Dr. Shaw, you've been doing a lot of reading on vaccines. What does the rollout look like? This is a massive project over an entire world. And then, of course, just like we had with the PPE situation, everybody's clamoring for it. Everybody's trying to get to the front of the line, and then you have to distribute it and give it in an orderly way. Um, Using our current public health infrastructure, I I think there's a lot of challenges to to getting it right. I echo the optimism in having a vaccine, especially because last week we talked about the phase one, two trials and the handful of candidates. So it's not just one candidate that's out, it's there are a multitude of candidates. So all that gives me a lot of hope. That brings us to you. You have probably close to exact answer on how it rolls out and even probably some intel on those glass vials, which are being produced right now, correct? I am going to be your guest with rose-colored glasses. There's a few things here. Number one, this is not like something that's totally off the wall, weird and unusual. H1N1, that was the same thing. We had a vaccine by October that year, 2009. H1N1, new virus came onto the world in March of nine. And we had a vaccine in offices and each county health department did it differently by October. We have the distribution channels. We have the VFC, that's HHS used the VFC program, built that infrastructure around the H1N1 vaccine. We've got that model in place. The manufacturing has to go properly. We need to get the right kind of test. Yeah, there's needles and vials and all that stuff that needs to get worked out. I think there's going to be fewer problems than people think in the U.S. Because one of the things Nick just was talking about and Gates mentioned, and I think you got that right, because he was talking about globally that it would take that long to get it into 7 billion people. But the ethical question, here's the thing, it's the rich countries that are going to get the vaccine first. The U.S. is given one2 billion dollars to AstraZeneca. They gave $2 billion to Pfizer. They've given $2 billion to Moderna to support the R&D and to buy vaccine, even if it doesn't work. So the U.S. has these built-in early delivery contracts with at least three different manufacturers through BARDA. That's the agency in the federal government that does this. That is not something that is happening in Cameroon or dozens and hundreds of other countries. What's going to end up happening? Countries like in the U.S., we will be vaccinating our very lowest risk people before the very highest risk people in, for example, 
Iran are able to get the vaccine. It depends on what country you're living in, in terms of how long it's going to take to get the vaccine. That does bring up some ethical questions. Is it really ethical for the rich countries, the European democracies and the United States to buy all of the available vaccine and the glass vials and the needles? And if you happen to live in Angola, tough luck, even if you're super high risk. Just to follow up on the H1N1 story. First of all, VFC stands for? The Vaccines for Children program. By the way, that in H1N1 in 2009, we used the VFC program, the Vaccines for Children program. That's the federal program that ensures that every single kid, no matter who they are, no matter their documented status, no matter how much money their parents make, are able to get vaccinated. So the Vaccines for Children program is that safety net program that protects all of us and all of our kids, regardless of their background and economic status. So that's the, what the VFC program is. The VFC program worked well for distributing vaccine during H1N1. And we have done it. We did it in a matter of months. Now that's influenza. We have a lot more experience with influenza. But I just don't think that in a country like ours with the infrastructure that we have and the unlimited resources and the ability for the federal government to sell treasury bills at less than 1% interest, there's going to be barriers uh, in this country. But there will certainly be barriers and health inequities around the globe, depending on the wealth of your country. Dr. Shaw, I know not much has changed since the last roundtable, but you again remain optimistic. I assume that means that you have been doing more reading about the phase two trials, what they yielded, the methods by which those vaccines are working. Can you give folks a sense of why you have that continued optimism based on that research? just basically comes down to safety and efficacy. It's that we're seeing good responses to the candidate vaccines. We're not seeing a lot of adverse effects. My understanding of how these things came about, that they're using delivery models that they've already been working on to provoke an immune response. So I guess there's a theoretical aspect to it that makes sense. That's really what it comes down to. And the fact that there are multiple candidates for these vaccines across the world. Those are the big reasons why I'm so optimistic. When you look at those trials, you see that almost everybody develops a good immune response. You're not seeing trials with a huge amount of failure. But again, that's what a phase three trial is for, to, to try to figure out what is the real efficacy of this kind of thing. Now, mind you, you still don't know what the real world efficacy is. You just can't. You don't know until you just really do it. Now, the phase three trial is supposed to get at that answer. Of the, all the people you vaccinated, how many actually got a coronavirus infection compared to a control group that wasn't vaccinated? And or what, what does it look like in the general population? On the other hand, Nick, you've got trials in phase two where you see almost every single member of that phase two trial develop antibodies. And in cases where it is tracked, you also see mediated T cells. Is that unusual at this phase, at phase two, to see like across the board efficacy? That's kind of one of those things where I'd have to ask somebody more expert than I as far as what's usual with a uh, vaccine trial. But those are a number of the reasons why I feel that the hope is warranted not really pie in the sky. The technology has definitely changed in advance. All those many years ago when I was at the U of A, you know, I got a molecular and cellular biology degree. Amount of technology that we have now in, in this realm is fantastic. 
I'm a believer that your mRNA vaccine is efficacious, really could be a heck of a new tool for infectious diseases and future pandemics. I'm hopeful that it's not an outlier. The whole process by which your body goes around making antibodies or an immune response is just being augmented by this process. I don't think it's all that much of an outlier. I'm going to ask one last question. It's not a lightning round. It's a new segment. We're going to call it Heard It Through the Grapevine. Each one of you, think back over the last couple of weeks, last month, something you heard through the grapevine about this pandemic that now, speaking to a whole bunch of people through a podcast, you can comment on or refute or support. I heard a family member bring up something that they had heard from friends that they referenced the Tuskegee experiment, the unequal treatment of African-Americans by white doctors as kind of a reason why they were concerned that they might want to not get the vaccine. It just really struck me as both uh, pertinent and poignant, but yet odd and, and wrong. So I guess I'll put it to you this way. If anybody is worried about the vaccine being an ulterior motive to anything, I wish to put a pin in that because there's just no truth to that. There's so many different vaccine trials. There's so many different people racing to try to do this. The whole motivation is just to try to save the world from this pandemic, but also get to market first. I don't want anybody to be afraid that this is a move by anybody, that it's political at all. This is just purely about healthcare and public health. Great answer. In fact, just before this recording, I received a similar message about, hey, what's Bill Gates really up to right now? With that same sort of sense of that, like, is there something nefarious going on? Well, heard it through the grapevine. What do you got? Somebody told me back in March, my uncle, wise guy, he said, you watch, this pandemic is going to change politics in this country forever. And I still don't know if that's true or not. The more I think about it, the more I think that it might actually be true. We are still going through this really dramatic, life-altering event together. And I think it's collectively changing the way we think individually and collectively about representative democracy and what we expect from our elected officials in terms of their behavior, in terms of their ability to manage. It may very well be that this watershed moment changes the way people think about how they vote. Well, I'm not talking about party affiliation. We're all going through something together. And I think that it actually is true that he was right back in March, that it's going to change things forever. How, I don't know exactly. So that's my grapevine. Dr. Shaw, something um, that you've heard through the grapevine, yeah. gave you pause, made you think, something that you want to share. Real quick, I just want to add that tomorrow is August 4th, the day of the primary in Arizona. So if you haven't already, please do go out there and vote. It's really important. That being said, I think there's one thing that does come to mind for me that I want to comment on, and that is how science is perceived and consumed by the general population. 
there's been a sort of perception of science as this activity that's engaged in by these folks that are scientists. And then eventually we come up with some kind of consensus. And sure enough, you see it in the media where one minute it's okay to eat butter. The next thing, butter has all kinds of lipids in it that are just really terrible for you. And and people watch that debate and they just kind of go, huh, isn't that interesting? Science produces in terms of knowledge and how important that is for our daily lives has become a lot more front and center. Because we're kind of going through this very rapidly and in the age of social media and different types of information out there, we're having to now see the public learning about what is good science and and not good science and how the process plays itself out. We're seeing preprints come out very fast. People grabbing onto those, latching onto those, putting that into the press very quickly, because again, it's front and center for everybody. We really want to know how this is all progressing. What I'm really hoping through all this is that we get some real appreciation of what science is, how the scientific process works, and that by following that science and understanding more about it, that the public understands more about how science is really done that it promotes an understanding of it, hopefully encourages a lot of younger kids to get involved in it and say, I want to be that kind of person who grows up to develop a vaccine that saves the world, but also becomes a lot more well-versed in how we think and talk about scientific matters. And, And what that means to me is people start understanding, look, there's a process, there are trials, The trials have to be done properly, that once the trial comes out and a paper comes out, you can't just latch onto the results. There's a peer review process, and it's something that is a back and forth. Now, those of us like Nick and I have been exposed to this in residency. We we know how the knowledge is produced that we use then in our practices going forward. But I don't think that it's been so front and center for the lay public in the past. This is a really good opportunity for us to promote what science really is and how by sticking to that and sticking to good sources of information, we can continue to do the best for ourselves. Part of what we've been doing on this podcast to promote a sense of understanding, but not just here are the facts. This is why the facts are the facts. That elevation of critical thinking is something that the public will get some of. And I'm really happy to see that because what's going to happen is that ultimately, if you're relying on good facts and good science, you're just going to be right a lot more often than those that are peddling in misinformation. It gives us the ability to really know something. And when you know something, it's more likely to be true tomorrow like it is today. And we can actually say it's more likely we know something gets to the heart of what knowledge really is. It's part of my overall hope for us as a country in that we saw this as initially something very foreign. We hadn't dealt with a pandemic in 100 years and it wasn't real. We've had to come to terms with it. And I think also this were to ever happen again, we would be very, very much more prepared. Very sad that we've had to mourn so many lives and and had to take a crash course in what it means for a country to go through a pandemic. But I really hope that we've come away from this a much more conscientious people. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Dr. Shaw. It's a pleasure to have Nick back at the table and a privilege to have Dr. Shaw, even in the face of four consecutive night shifts for him. That alone should be a strong reminder to each of us that our daily conduct and choices all carry the consequence of taxing our healthcare professionals. For them, let's remember, 
Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. It's a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we'll get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back in two weeks, but the podcast itself will be back next week with yet another conversation on health and well-being in Arizona. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Last week's LGBTQ communities conversation is already a huge hit. If you somehow missed it, now's your time to gain great insights. Likewise, we've got a great two-part series on heat and climate change, plus our episodes on food, affordable housing, the census, first responders, and the art and practice of storytelling. In other words, The Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our more than three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or, listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. <laughs>